All right, welcome to Books and Badgers. Uh, you know me, I'm Colin, and with me, as always, is my brother Trevor. Uh, Trevor, how you doing? I'm doing great, ready to kick off season two. Yeah, crazy to think that we are in season two, and we are going to be covering Moss Flower book one. Uh, this is a huge book. Uh, this is, the I think, the biggest book that we've seen so far, right? Yeah, um, it's, definitely. It, yeah, it's close to 200 pages, so we've got tons to cover with that. Uh, but I can't believe that we're in season two. As I was setting up the recording, uh, I had you know marked that it was for season two. I'm like, dang, that's crazy. It's, we went through season season one so quickly. Uh, we just loved going through Redwall. Uh, man, I I gotta say, I think I'm a little more excited to talk about Mossflower. I think Mossflower is the better book, so I agree. <laughs> yeah, uh, and we'll talk exactly as to why some of those things, uh, what we like about it, and what some of those things are. But before we get into that discussion. I always got to ask you this, Trevor. I know I, I follow you on Goodreads. I see all the books that you're reading. I know that you've got some good ones that you're working on uh, or working through. Uh, so I'd love to hear more about what you're reading. Yeah. So uh, this week I read The Daughters of Block Island by Krista Carmen. It is a gothic mystery, a bit of horror in there as well uh, about a girl who goes out to her old home in Rhode Island on Block Island to try to solve some of the questions that she has about her sister's murder. Uh, it's way twistier than just that. It is a really fantastic kind of tra traipse through a lot of familiar gothic tropes. I absolutely love it. Yeah, it sounds super cool. And um, you're you're working on a pretty big interview coming up too, right? I've done a whole bunch of different interviews lately. I just put together, uh, it, it dropped today, day of recording. So if you're listening to this, it's already out. Uh, but you can listen nice. to Laura Senf's episode uh, where we talk about the night housekeeper and kind of her take on child literacy. Um, and I just recorded an episode with Krista Carmen about the Daughters of Block Island. So that won't be out for just a few more weeks. We're going to try to aim to have it out a little bit closer to when the book comes out. But I also have on the horizon Angela Sylvain uh, talking about her new novel, Frostbite, which is kind of a throwback to some 90s horror and I've also got some episodes with Nat Cassidy and Erica T. Worth that have been recorded and are slated to drop at the end of October for Nat Cassidy and the end of September for Erica T. Worth. So if you're interested in those interviews, you can check those out as well. Yeah, I'm really excited for that Nat Cassidy one. I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be really uh, exciting, an exciting listen, and uh, I can't wait for that one to drop. Uh, well, for me, I really haven't been reading anything besides Moss Flower. Um, I usually get some time in between meetings at, at work where I can uh, pull out a book and read a few chapters of something. But uh, the last two weeks have just been so crazy at work that I haven't been able to read anything. So uh, my mind is really just on the single track, which is Moss Flower. So <laughs> it's it's kind of a one track mind with that. So I'm so excited to jump into it. Um, what do you say, Chev? Should we just jump into it? I think so. No better time than the present. No better time. Let's do it. One, Cotier, takes place in Mossflower way before the founding of Redwall. We open with a prologue in which a young mouse comes to Bella of Brockhall for a story. And Bella decides to tell the story of how Martin the Warrior came to Mossflower during the brutal reign of Sarmina and Verdaga 
green eyes. Yeah, I was just going to chime in and say, um, I, apologies for the pronunciation. <laughs> I am going to get so many of these characters wrong. They are way more complicated and, and from my perspective as to some of the characters we met in Redwall. So my pronunciation is going to be all over the place. But this prologue is the perfect introduction for Mossflower because it's like settle up, you know, get cozy because we're about to go on an adventure. I really loved this prologue. It was really cool. Yeah, I love the framing of just like, hey, sit down. We're going to tell you a story uh, and and away we go. It's a neat yeah. little warm way of kind of inviting you into what you're about to get, you know, a real taste of. So chapter one opens with winter in moss flower and a young warrior mouse, Martin, is traveling to moss flower from the north. Meanwhile, the Stickle family, who are hedgehogs, bemoans their lack of food when they are interrupted by Earthclaw, a mole friend. Earthclaw says he's thinking of escaping Mossflower to go to Corin. While they discuss options, some vermin soldiers come to the house and demand tribute. They take the last of the Stickle family's food and then leave. As they leave... Earthclaw and Ben Stickle witness a fight between the guards and Martin. Though the guards capture Martin, Ben Stickle decides then that it is time for him to leave his home. What a powerful introduction to Mossflower. I was really kind of floored by this chapter because it sets up so much that's going on. Uh, the first is that it's wintertime. It's wintertime in Mossflower. So this is very different from the the mood and the feel as of what we got in book one, Redwall. Or sorry, the book, first book in the series, Redwall. Because um, that's in the summertime, it's springtime. Um, so this is really cool to see this different setting of Mossflower. We also have that first familiar character, Martin the Warrior. And mm -hmm. we get an understanding of the kind of politics. Uh, is it maybe that's the best, best way to put yeah. it? Um, going on with Kotir and these <laughs> weasels, I think they are, that come and demand the tribute of the hedgehog of the uh, the hedgehog family, uh, the Stickle family, is such a great introduction to who our adversaries are and really the state of of what's going on. Um, brilliant writing by by Jake's and. Uh, when I first read this chapter, when I when you know starting the book, I was just floored as to how much of a better writer Jake's is in this first chapter than some of the chapters that we saw in Redwall. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, though, Trevor. I mean, his prose is leaps and bounds above what Redwall was. So much more evocative of space and mood and time. And I absolutely agree with you. I was floored by this introduction to the story because I think he really does a great job of setting the scene for us. And we're also introduced to, like you say, the politics of the moment, which, uh, and we're, but, but we're introduced to that, not through Martin necessarily, but right. through this poor hedgehog family which I think, again, grounds us in space and time so much better than if it were just Martin the Warrior. Yeah, it's um, yeah, you're totally right. And I I like that we also are getting um, some moss flower characters, um, wood, wood, woodland creatures that are different than Redwall. Like we're not focusing right on the mice to start. I love that it's a hedgehog family. I love that the moles are are working with them. Um, it's so cool to see these characters come to life, even in this this first chapter. I felt like I was stepping in a completely different story. And I don't mean that to kind of put down book one, Redwall. I'm just saying it's like Jake's leveled up <laughs> in between writing yes. these two books. Like he it went out and explored Redwall and fixed all the the problems with it. Um, we'll, we'll talk more about that later. But he, it's like he went out and he explored Redwall and he came back and was like, okay, I know how to detail this world. I know how to write these prose to describe this. I know what I'm doing in this book. And he kicks it. It's like a home run with this first chapter. I I was in love from this first chapter. I'm, I'm going to go out and say it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think he does level up. Um, absolutely. 
So chapter two, we're introduced to Gonf the Thief, who marches through the larders of Castle Cotier, stealing from the wildcats and vermin that rule there. As he exits, vermin soldiers escort Martin into the castle. Martin gives up a tough fight as they try to take him into captivity, but as Martin tries and fails to escape, the vixen healer Fortunata enters Cotier and heads to Verdaga Greeneyes' chamber. Verdaga is bedridden and ill, accompanied by his daughter Sarmina and his son Gingivere, as well as a pine marten named Ashleg, who is a twisted and warped creature who hides his body under a cloak. Fortunata creates a draft that she intends to give to the ailing Verdaga, but it is clear that she and Sarmina are conspiring against the old wildcat man setting the stage for a lot going on um first i wanted to say i love the introduction of gonf i his <laughs> demeanor and him you know singing a song and just you know stealing cheese is so cool and it's like from the very beginning we understand that he's the uh, a rogue um mouse uh and he's very confident in his abilities uh and then that's kind of um his I don't know, jovial jaunt through Cotier as he's stealing this food is so much different from Martin being like arrested, essentially, like he's being dragged <laughs> into the, you know, into the the, the cells, into uh, deeper into Cotier. And I just thought was, that was really cool. Like he even kind of hears Martin, right? He hears Martin um, struggling yeah. and he's just like, I don't know what's going on with that. And he kind of goes on his way. Um, very cool introduction to, to Gomp. Um, very memorable, in my opinion. I... I, I have never read this book before, so this is the first time that I'm reading it. But uh, he definitely stood out, um, immediately stood out among the, the new characters that we are, are meeting in, in Mossflower. Yeah, we're going to talk a lot about new characters at the end of book one, where we we kind of do our little, you know, who is a standout for you. Um, yeah. So I, I know we're going to talk a lot more about Gonf, but yeah, what a great character. And I think in these first two chapters, we get a total picture of the situation, right? Mossflower is currently under the rule of this Verdaga Green Eyes, who is a wild cat. And, and we get the sense that Verdaga is very much a, a kind of totalitarian ruler. But as we'll come to see, he's not necessarily the most unfair character. He's a villain for sure. But of his, you know, the Green Eyes family, he's certainly not the most villainous. Yeah, I, I, I love that you and you point that out because he um, he he is clearly respected among the inhabitants of Kotir, but also has a very mm -hmm. strict rule. And we saw that with basically the rating of the um, uh, I forgot their name, the the Stickle family earlier in the, in yes. the first chapter. Yeah. Yeah, and and so I think that this starts to paint a much broader picture of, you know, some of the kind of classical themes that Jake's is kind of working with. We're going to have a lot to talk about all of these different characters, Sarmina, Fortunata, Verdaga, Gingivere, you know, like all of these characters, I think, are really interesting and create kind of new archetypes that he's playing with. One of the things that I was struck by, though, in these first two chapters, as we come to understand the situation in Mossflower, I feel like this is a, a little bit of an homage to like Robin Hood. And I agree. Yeah, we can see the the Green Eyes as kind of being the Prince John and the Sheriff of Nottingham of uh, Robin Hood fame, and here we have gone who strikes me absolutely as the Robin Hood type. Yeah, I I love your comparison to that cuz I did I didn't think of that initially too. Whereas like this seems like it's it kind of feels like Robin Hood to your to your point. And even the the structure, the difference in the lifestyle that we see with the wildcats, the green eyes that are and how they're living and their their struggles so much different than the Stickle family, but then also that's also different from Gomp who um, takes joy and pleasure in his his thievery. Uh, it's very cool. <laughs> I like that he's incorporating a lot of this in, into it. Um, yeah. Great, great yeah. point. 
Yeah. In chapter three, Gomph surprises the Stickle family and Earthclaw as they travel to a Corum safe haven. Corum meaning the Council of Resistance in Mossflower. Gomph shares the food that he liberated from Castle Katir. They all reflect on the collective fate of Mossflower, and Gomph hopes that when the, the right hero shows up to confront the wildcats of Katir, Mossflower will be ready to stand up against their tyranny as well. Yeah, what are your, what are your thoughts on this chapter three? It's pretty short. Again, we get a little bit more of Gomph's personality, which I think never goes amiss. Um, but we're also setting up, you know, kind of a major theme, which is this idea of how to effectively stage a resistance. When do we get to the point when action is really needed? And so there's kind of this thought of like, there has to be a leader, there has to be a warrior, there needs to be someone behind which we can kind of corral our energy, our enthusiasm. And it's clear that that character is supposed to be Martin, right? But I yeah. do want, yeah, I want to kind of like put a pin in this for further discussion as the book sure. unfolds, because it's clear that Martin is a very charismatic warrior throughout this book. But I still think that Jake's is, is playing a little bit more with ideas of like who really is a hero and what does resistance look like? Can resistance exist without the charismatic figure or is it the charismatic figure that is necessary in galvanizing, you know, kind of uh, uh, creating unity, you know, for a creature or a, a group of creatures? That's the question that I think sticks with me about this book one. Yeah, I'm so glad that you led the that conversation because I, I was thinking the same thing, but I didn't know if that was just um, purely my own, you know, maybe I'm just projecting too much of what I wanted to see out of the book. Um, so let's put a pin in, pin in Martin's role in this, because I think that um, what I have to say is probably a little bit more constructive as we get further on. So let's move on to chapter four. Yeah. In chapter four, Martin is taken before Verdaga who questions the mouse about his trespassing through Mossflower. Sarmina pronounces that Martin's crimes for trespassing and bearing arms in Mossflower country are punishable by death. But Squire Gingivere suggests more leniency in sentencing Martin. Verdaga decides to imprison the mouse, and Sarmina breaks the old sword Martin brought with him. Martin vows to kill Sarmina before he's taken away. As Martin sits in prison, his shattered sword hilt is brought and tied around his neck as a symbol of shame. Sarmina succeeds in poisoning Verdaga later and then blames the murder on Gingivere, who's quickly imprisoned while Sarmina takes the throne. Man, so much to unpack in this chapter four, I can't even believe this is only chapter four and we like have so much, so much that's going on. Um, so first a bit kind of based off what you're talking about with, uh, Verdaga's, uh, sense of justice. I love the conversation that Verdaga has with Sarmina and, um, Gingivere about Martin, the warrior. And I think it's Gingivere that says specifically, like he's a fearless warrior. We shouldn't just kill him. Like, because he's a fierce warrior, we should give him mercy, right? Or or ex exercise justice in a way, because warriors don't come around that often. Um, I'm definitely paraphrasing from that. But I love mm -hmm. that that idea that Gingivere brings up saying like, hey, we just because he was, you know, he he battled <laughs> some of our um, scouts. Uh, and we can clearly tell that he's like an important um powerful person we should try to figure out what what to do with that before we just simply execute him um and then the dynamic between sarmina breaking the sword and that kicking off which i, I imagine is a revenge quest quest for martin because he says very explicitly i'm gonna kill you <laughs> for doing that like i'm gonna use this blade to end your life i think is how he kind of phrases it um yeah. so cool just how this the stage is set we knew, know who the players are. We have the sense of 
um, rule and justice and fairness with the the green eyes. But we also know, I mean, Sarmina is, uh, <laughs> Sarmina is the bad guy, right? Like we're kind of establishing that, uh, especially in the way that she poisons uh, and really assassinates. Um, is it her uncle? I forgot the, the actual dynamic. Her father. It's her father. Yeah. Her father. Yeah. Sorry. Um, her poisoning her father. The the assassination assassination assassination. Excuse me of her father. Um, is so cool to see. Like this. This is another reason why I think Jake's has really leveled up in his storytelling, because we're actually getting into some complexity in the story, and we're getting some complexity in the the politics um, of Redwall. It's really really cool to see. Very fresh to see. I love the kind of dynamic between Sarmina and Gingivere because they are two extremes of kind of the same line, the same lineage. We see Verdaga is capable of mercy and even capable of, of being intelligent about how he wants to mete out justice. He might be brutal, but I don't think that he's necessarily the same kind of evil as like a Sarmina, if we can put them on the D and D scale, if you will, (laughs) I think that what we see here is that Verdaga is absolutely a lawful evil kind of character. Whereas Sarmina is just chaotic evil through and through. She just wants what she wants and anyone who gets in her way be damned. We also see a little glimpse of really what makes Sarmina a memorable villain. She is full of rage, whereas I think Clooney's fatal flaw was his pride and his, you know, kind of greed. I think that Sarmina's fatal flaw is absolutely her rage. And so snapping Martin's sword you know, because she doesn't get her way in executing him is just one example of how she is defined by kind of her worst impulses. Yeah. And I think that the craftiness of how she assassinates, um, uh, Verdaga is also kind of speaks to her, um, her creativeness or her craftiness because she has, uh, Fortunata do it um, right like she's mm-hmm. she tells her yeah. you you'll give him this and if it doesn't work well you know you better hope it does because they're going to think that you poisoned him like she's really putting Fortunata in in between you know this action as a scapegoat so that she isn't responsible for it for for this failed assassination if it doesn't work um, again pretty clever of her to, to be kind of working these individuals to do that Yeah, not only that, but I think one of the things that we'll find as the book continues is that Sarmina is incapable of looking at Gingivere. She kind of completely sequesters him away so that she doesn't have to deal with the guilt or the consequences of what she's really done. Yeah, absolutely. In chapter five... Gonf is captured some months later after trying to raid Katir once again and is taken to Martin's cell. There, the two mice exchange information about Mossflower Wood and their respective origins. Gonf explains the history of Verdaga and the origins of Korim, and Martin shares the story of his father, Luke, and of his warrior life in the north. They strike up a friendship together in spite of their circumstances. I'd love to hear your thoughts first on this chapter. Man, I love a lore dump. It is one of the things that in fantasy literature, I'm never going to get tired of it. Yeah. And there is so much lore to digest here. First off, we know that Verdaga swept in, found this castle, kind of took his place up and had a fight with some badgers in the area that wanted to try to protect Mossflower, a fight that Verdaga won. And so the situation in Mossflower has deteriorated rapidly. And as we know, now Sarmina is in control and she's even more brutal than her father ever was. 
We also get a lot from Martin where we learn that Martin comes from the North where he lived a kind of nomadic life in the North. There is not the same kind of cottages or hovels where people live. They live in caves and they are constantly under assault by corsairs and sea pirates and, and sea so, rats, yeah yeah sea rats who act as the pirates of of you know the moss flower lore right yep and so he was raised to only know fighting and to fight for everything his whole life which makes him a very skilled and formidable warrior but also not necessarily one who knows how to settle down or live amongst a larger community. Yeah, this is such a cool uh, detail and kind of the lore of Martin the Warrior that I wish this was included in Redwall, simply because it shows so much about why Martin is how he is, and in a way, why Matthias is why he is, because he just, his whole life is, beating up bad guys like his whole life <laughs> is fighting sea rats and isn't that what Clooney is he's a, a rat from portugal right so doesn't that make him a sea rat i think this is such a cool um kind of callback to mart the warrior as we know him but it, it's it's so cool to understand why he is a warrior and he comes from a lineage of warriors his father was a, a, a warrior as well i am so excited to read legend of luke because i assume this has to do with that so um that has completely jumped up on my my anticipation for next um books in this series um i i think this is probably my favorite uh, most in, engrossing chapter so far um when i was reading this i was hooked like i think i was reading this and um completely zoned out as to like what was going on around me and then realized i'm like oh my gosh i have like really just got into this book you know like got really immersed into it um i also really like how you bring up with the kind of the dynamic between um uh verdaga and overtaking badgers because we know mm -hmm. how strong badgers are and these wildcats and their reign is a is a legitimate threat like that small detail I think spoke so much to the rule of these wildcats and that this, these foes feel so much more formidable than what Clooney was because like Clooney couldn't beat up a badger. You know what I mean? Like that's, that seems, <laughs> you know, I, well, I don't think he could, maybe he could. Um, but it, this introduction of the wildcats in their war, it's kind of like open war against the badgers and them winning is is a great detail. I I think again I have to give Jake's just applause for how he's setting up things because he's doing it such a good pace and he's using you know these uh these lore dumps to reinforce key ideas that we were already learning from this the very beginning of this book. Um yeah, I'm this got me so excited for uh Moss Flower. And if I'm being candid, I think this is why I rated Redwall lower because I think we did our <laughs> review episode right after reading this. And I'm like, man, there's so much that's just missing from Redwall that I wish was there that's in this book. And I, it kind of tainted my perspective of Redwall. I, I won't, I won't lie about that. Yeah. The, the deepening of the world of Moss flower through this book. I mean, it's called Moss yeah. flower. We should expect a deepening of this world but it's so fun it's so good to learn these little kind of snippets of what's going on and then to see how it plays into the events as they unfold later it's it's so cool yeah i should uh i know we're spending a lot of time in this chapter because we're just gushing about it of how how cool it is but i also want to say i love the immediate connection between gonf and martin yes. they are two peas in a pod like they really are so similar but their personalities you know are are different in a way that they complement each other so well even in like the fact that martin is just like i gotta get out of here i gotta get out of here and gonf is like i always get out dude don't worry like <laughs> i just love that detail he's like i'm 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 an, an expert at getting out so you know don't worry about it yeah gonf's his pride and also just his 
self-assuredness is so fun to watch. Yeah, I think I after reading this chapter, I wanted to text you, Trevor, and say, um, we need to do an introduction as uh, you know, the the Martin to my golf or the golf to my Martin. <laughs> Uh, because (laughs) it's such a cool dynamic. I I like it. Yeah, for sure. Chapter six introduces us to the leaders of Corim, and these are some more important characters as we come to know them. There's Ben Stickle, the hedgehog, Bella of Rock Hall, who is a very important badger we're going to talk about in a second, the skipper of otters, Lady Amber, the Squirrel Chief, and Billum, second in command to Formal. They meet in secret to discuss to, to discuss Gonf's capture and to plot his escape. Meanwhile, Sarmina attempts to kill Argular, a gold eagle who harasses Katir in hopes of his next meal. In Kotir's dungeon, Gonf receives his thieving tools and plans his breakout alongside Martin. All right. We have to talk about, uh, Argular. Is that how you say his name? I, I didn't actually. Argu- yeah. Argular. Ar- Argular. Um, Argular. Argular. Something like that. I'd like to talk about Argular specifically in his role with what's going on because he's a blind Eagle, right? Like he's an elderly blind yeah, Eagle. Yeah. So he it's, he is a threat, but he's more of a nuisance than anything else. Like, um, mm-hmm. I couldn't help but immediately compare him to Asmodeus or Asmodeus, yes. whatever you want to say. It, from, yeah. Yeah. From Redwall. And, um, I, they, they are, they kind of have a similar role. Like we're getting introduced yeah. to this, um, this threat that's outside of the green eyes, but at the same time, no one seems to be all that concerned. I, I mean, besides Sarmina, because he's literally right outside her window. No one is really all that concerned more than, I don't know what, what else is going on. I, I, no. I, yeah, I love your thoughts on this. He, he is a weird character. Um, and I think about his role in this story because like it's been, gosh, 20 years since I read this book uh, for the first time. So I, I can't remember everything and I'm not finished with the book just yet. I don't recall him having a super big role in the rest of the story though, like Asmodeus. And yet he does kind of serve as this secondary danger to just like Asmodeus once did. He's not as symbolically important though, which makes him kind of a fun inclusion, but also a very unnecessary character, I think, to the the overall lore of the book. Yeah, I think so too. It's almost like I, I can't tell if Jakes is trying to make him like a comic relief because you know, a bald eagle that has you know, a hankering for a specific kind of (laughs) stoat is just kind of like funny to me, but I just, I don't know if that's what he's really intending to do. Um, One thing I do love about this, this chapter though, is we are introduced to a whole cast of characters very, very quickly. And I I noted in, in my reading notes that um, Mossflower feels so much more alive than the Abbey does, not because the Abbey didn't have memorable characters, but just because we have established characters. Like we, we're meeting yeah. Ben Stickle, we're meeting Bella, we're meeting um, a, a group of otters, we're leading a, a very well, uh, as we'll see, a very well trained, deadly group of squirrels. Like it's so cool to see the quorum come together and these individuals have an established role and purpose that they don't feel like they're side characters waiting for someone to come along. They feel very much established. Um, really, really cool inclusion. And um, it's like, I, I, I keep comparing them to the, the Redwall characters that we know, but they really do feel individual from each other. Like Bella feels different than Constance does. Ben Stickle feels different than Spike does, you know, like there's just yes. a lot of nuances that they, you can tell that like Ben Stickle is, a hedgehog, right? You can tell that Bella yeah. is a badger, but at the same time, they they really do have their own unique personalities, and something that I really liked about that. 
I also love that they all represent different communities. And one of the cool things that yeah. book one does is it takes us into these different communities so we can see a little bit how they operate. We have to remember Mossflower takes place before Redwall and the unification of these characters under one roof into one community. So as the kind of origin story of a band of creatures gathering together for a greater unity, this is really fascinating to see this round table of all of these different leaders and the nations that they lead. Yeah, that's such a good point. I didn't really think about Corum being that origin of Red, of of the Abbey. Um, I don't know if it is. I mean, I haven't I haven't read Mossflower and more of the books that lead up closer to in the timeline to to Redwall. Um, but I, I I love that idea if that's true that this Corum is kind of the first introduction of these characters to be working together towards something that is beneficial to all of them because that's really what brought them together right is that they're right. under this rule of Sar sarmina or, or verdaga and they're having to pay tributes through food and they realize well we could you know we could establish something on our own that works better to our you know whole benefit not necessarily having to tax other people to get food to you know make it through the winter um i think yeah i i i love that you pointed out the um, kind of parallel between Quorum and and Redwall, because I think that that's going to be so much more important in uh, part three of this book. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in chapter seven, Skipper and Amber lead a rescue party to Katir, while Martin and Gonf attempt their own escape. Gonf and Martin both promise to return to free Gingivere when Abel but then run into Sarmina on their way out of the fortress. A chase ensues with Gonf and Martin narrowly escaping Sarmina through a window. After a brief skirmish, Martin and Gonf make off with the rest of the Corum rescuers. I genuinely laughed out loud at this chapter because it's so funny that they it's are like... Banana. <laughs> they're running around in, in Kotir. <laughs> And um, they're trying to sneak up the stairs and it's from the perspective of um, of Sarmina and she's coming down the stairs. It's so clever how Jake's <laughs> kind of breaks up these chapters for these point of views to come together for this collision where they're forced to jump out the window. Um, yeah, such yeah. a fun chapter. And I have to note, there really hasn't been a whole lot of deaths in this uh, so far. No. <laughs> and this is an instance where it just feels like um, this is such a fun scene that's happening where the stakes really aren't that high. You know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah. we probably know that they're getting away, but it's so much fun to see the, the kind of playfulness of what's going on. And I also love that Martin is genuinely concerned about what's going on. And Gomp is just along for a ride of his life. Like he thinks this is so <laughs> funny. He's like, we're about to jump out the window. Like they hide in the bed and then they're like, we're going to jump out the window. And Martin's like, what are you talking about, dude? <laughs> what? And yeah, sure enough, they just, they jump out. Uh, so my, my favorite part of this, because they're chased all around Katir and like outside, Skipper and Amber are like, where are they? We're, you know, like they're sitting outside, <laughs> yeah, like with the taxi, you know, like the meter's running, guys. Like we got to do something. And uh, and meanwhile, Gonf and Martin are like hiding under Verdaga's her, under her bed, yeah, <laughs> under under Verdaga's bed, yeah, his deathbed. Um, they're like escaping through oh, the. Dining I didn't even hall. know it was his deathbed. I didn't think about yeah. that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. They, they 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 like slip through the dining halls as all of all of Sarmina's army are like like dining at the moment and, and Gomp and and Martin are like, are we just gonna do this? I guess so. Like it's out the window we go. Yeah, um, it's so clever. My favorite kind of punctuation to this action bit is one of Sarmina's uh, troops is like, I guess this is the moment where I be the hero and I'm going <laughs> to jump out after them. And he jumps out the window just for the eagle to swoop down and swallow him. <laughs> it's so funny. 
Yeah, I that's I I'm glad you brought that up because I kind of forgot about that in um I didn't have that in my notes. But yeah, that is is so humorous that he's like someone needs to do something and he jumps out the window and and gets swallowed up. Um yeah, very clever. I I loved this chapter and I think this is one of the most fun chapters I've had reading a book just in a long while. Like I really enjoyed the the dynamic of what's going on. Um Yeah. Yeah, I, I could gush about this chapter for another 10 minutes, but we should probably move on. Yeah, I will say there is one little little lore note that is important to the next chapter, which is that while Skip and Amber are waiting for Martin and Gonf to show up, a procession of mice in green habits show up just out of nowhere. Nobody knows who these folks are. And so Skip and Amber divert some of their forces to go rescue this group and bring them back to Brock Hall. And we're going to meet those characters in a moment. And they're very important to the lore of this story. Yeah, that's a good, that's a really good inclusion. What, what were your thoughts of that when, when it happened? Um, I was a little confused as to who they were. Um, because they just really do come out of nowhere. And it seems like, oh, are we just getting another diversion at this moment? But it is kind of a suturing together of like a character does need to show up and be in, you know, kind of conversation here. The character is not very well developed in book one, but is, like I said, very important to the lore. And we're going to recognize the character in just another chapter. When I finally did figure out who these mice were, uh, it, it clicked. I was like, oh, right. I, I know why they're here. Because mice are not very well represented in Brock Hall at this moment. It's really just Gomph that we see. So this is another group of, you know, kind of woodland creatures, like another woodland nation that is joining the Corum. Yeah, I just wanted to know. I had to do like a, a quick Google, but I wanted to know. Um, that Gonf is raised by um, the Stickles, by by um, by mm -hmm. Ben Stickle and Goody. Uh, so that that's really the only reason why he's included in the quorum is because he's he was kind of yeah. like a uh, I don't want to say stray. I don't know if that's the right term, but um, no, he, he was. Yeah, he was orphaned, orphaned. Yeah, and he was raised by by the Stickles. So um, yeah, great point. I I didn't really think about that to start, but I did want to bring up the point as to you know, why Gonf is, is there. Yeah. In chapter eight, we meet back in Brock Hall and Abbess Germain of Loamhedge arrives in the care of Bella after being escorted in the previous chapter. Bella catches Germain up on what has happened since their first meeting involving an explanation of Bella's lineage and the unknown fate of her son, Sunflash. So I think this is a good opportunity for us to dump some more lore <laughs> about this setting. Right. And it involves a lot of badgers. Well, you know, on books and badgers, we love badgers. So <laughs> we're excited <laughs> to jump into it. Uh, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts first. So uh, number one, if if you don't catch the importance of that name, Abbas Germain, uh, Lady Germain was, or Sister Germain was the one that Methuselah looked to to find the blueprints for Redwall Abbey. So we don't know very much about what Loamhedge is, except that apparently there was a plague there, and that is why Abbas Germain has had to leave. Yeah, I I expect this is a setup for another book. So I didn't do like a, a super deep dive into into Loam Hedge, but I think this inclusion is is clearly for those who read Redwall to to know that this is important to the founding of the Abbey. I mean, it, it's there's so many signs that are pointing to that, and um, her introduction as a, like you said, this is a huge callback to a very small detail in Redwall. Um, I love that Jake's is now starting to click stories together. I mean, we had Martin the War Warrior, yeah. obviously, but it's it's cool to see him now starting to weave these threads to make this overall bigger world. Um, 
it, it was really yeah re- really love to see this and we get that through the badgers too right yeah the badgers are also really important again this is kind of a bringing together of all of the different kind of nations uh or, or right. nation states of Mossflower under the the kind of banner of Corum. so Corum is absolutely the origin of Redwall, and and now we have this character in Abbas Germain, who we know was at least involved in some of the architecture of, of creating Redwall Abbey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but Bella really steals the show, I think, in terms of her lineage because she bears out for us exactly who Bella is. So Bella's grandfather was a badger named Lord Brocktree. And Lord Brocktree had a son named Boar, Boar the Fighter. Boar did not have a son of his own. Boar had Bella. Um, and so there was really no um, male heir to Boar the Fighter, except that Bella, in her travels through the world, encountered a mate. And that mate was, uh, oh, what was her mate's name? Barkstripe. So her mate Barkstripe, uh, together they have a son, and the the son is Sunflash, um, who's called Sunflash because he's got like a golden stripe on his head, uh, which is a different kind of coloration for badgers. The problem really begins when Verdaga comes in in Boar's absence, because Boar was the protector of Mossflower for a long time. So Verdaga comes through and takes over Katir and begins to expand into Mossflower. And because there's no one really there to oppose him, he gains a lot of power very quickly. Barkstripe, who is not really necessarily a fighter badger, uh, decides that he's going to go fight at Katir and face off with Verdaga and Sunflash joins him in that fight. Barkstripe dies in a battle with Verdaga and Sunflash is missing. They never recover his body. Hint, hint. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, I wonder why, <laughs> but he is presumed dead by Bella or yeah, or, or lo- yeah, she presumes that he's dead, but we know that he's lost, right? Like, um, you, of course, we we have a feeling like, ooh, that's going to come back later, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, <laughs> prepare yourself, right? <laughs> Sunflash <laughs> may not be as dead as Bella presumes. Yeah, I can't remember if it's in this chapter if we learn more about Barkstripe and um, Lord Brocktree later. We get we get more of a badger lore dump when we hear more about uh salamandastron or a salamandastron and so i think that that's yeah i'll kind of put my pin in in until we get to that chapter yeah it's kind of borne out here uh this is kind of a short chapter but it's repeated several times throughout the book we you know we really start to get the legend of you know some of these uh badgers in chapter nine, Martin and Gonf accompany the otters back toward Corum, but are ambushed along the way by Sarmina. A battle ensues, and several otters are killed alongside a few of Sarmina's soldiers. As the otters make their daring escape, Sarmina calls for her soldiers to release the gloomer. This is such a cool battle. Um, I... <laughs> this is another instance when we're reading that I just felt like Jake's has really leveled up his writing because the dynamic between the um, stoats and rats that are uh, attacking the squirrels and the otters and how they have volleys that kind of parry each other and they're diving behind trees as the otters, you know, sling rocks at them. There's so many cool things that are happening in this battle. And like we see the acrobatics of the otters as they're trying to get away and they get into the water um, and once they hit the water, it's, you know, they're like, they're gone because they're expert right. swimmers. Um, and so it's just really cool to see like the advantages, the disadvantages that these warriors have as they kind of battle it out. Um, I felt like it was so much more dynamic than what we saw with some of the sieges 
um, in yeah. red ball. Yeah. I, I, what do you think? No, I agree. I think one of the things that I love about this book too, so much is setting and, and kind of stakes. Yeah. The map at the very beginning of the book shows us the kind of relation where all of these different places are located in the world. And so there's this sense that like Martin and Gomp really have to get to the water because that's their ticket out. Yep. And, uh, and so the otters, you know, kind of like they have to fight to get there. Mm -hmm. um, and once they do get there, there's kind of this feeling of like, well, we did it. We got away. Uh, but then we see that like Sarmina has a backup plan. Sarmina has a whole bunch of tricks up her sleeve that really complicate a lot of the kind of escape efforts. And I think we do see why it's so difficult to try to tackle Sarmina in a way that means victory for the woodland creatures. Yeah, and I think that the fact that the otters are skilled in they're skilled in their their fighting, right? As they're trying to get away from Sarmina's yeah. army. But it's not like Sarmina's army are complete oafs. Like we obviously we learn later right. that there are some oafs in her army and they're kind of a comic relief. But they they really are pretty evenly matched. And I I like that you point out that it it's their whole they were saying to um sorry the otters are saying to martin and gomf we have to get to the water like once we get to the water we're out of here and even when they get into the water he's like hey hold your breath we're going under and they just you know they <laughs> they take off and it's just so cool to see like um they have a strategy they have a plan of how they're going to get out of this and they have casualties that happen with it too it's not like mm -hmm. they're just having fun you know accidentally causing war crimes like what we saw in redwall they really have to be <laughs> super strategic in what they're doing and they also understand the risks that are involved in the, in doing that yeah and and like this there are stakes right they lose yeah. members of of their you know their their party uh, it, it doesn't work out for everybody. Some bodies are left on the beach. Yeah, and Sarmina loses numbers too, right? Like it's not oh, just yeah. the otters that die. Yeah, there there's casualties on both sides because they're they're equally skilled, and that's the thing that I like more about this um, and how Jake's is writing this. And I hope we see more of this going forward. Like I really love this kind of dynamic that's being yeah. built within Mossflower. That I hope that we see in other books as well. So in chapter 10, Martin and Gomf get to shore with the otters at Camp Willow. The otters quickly tally their dead and wounded, and one of their survivors says that she overheard Sarmina summoning the Gloomer. Back with the stickles, Ben and Goody put Ferdy and Cogs to bed. Very different dynamics there. Sarmina is summoning the Gloomer. We were about to learn about who the Gloomer is, uh, yeah. but then... <laughs> you know we have the stickles doing their night night routine so uh, i bring up the stickles because we're introduced to their family and they show up you know pretty often um and we get to we get to know ferdy and cogs a bit more and uh and they 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 have a presence in this first book in a way that is not just meaningful to the plot but i think shows some of the woodlanders spirit yeah, I think we're actually introduced to, um, oh, I forgot his name. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I th we're introduced to Ferdy and Cogs, I think, earlier. I think it's towards like chapter a little seven early. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah we, we get a glimpse of them. They have a really cool thumbnail, um, if you're reading the, the paperback, <laughs> of yeah, them like walking with, um, with uh, pots over their heads, and it, it's pretty clever. Yeah, chapter seven. Yeah. Chapter seven, Ferdy and Cogs, because they want to join in the patrol, uh, yeah. with the patrol. They want to join in with the rescue efforts. Uh, and it's really like Otter and Lady Amber who talk them up like, oh, you're so great. But really, you, you should probably uh, stay home, you know, do some do some sentry duty. Uh, and really here <laughs> in chapter 10, they've just fallen asleep. <laughs> Yeah, I, sh I should mention a little bit more about Lady Amber that she is also very important to the otters getting away because the the squirrels yes. are also providing essentially like covering fire. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 
<laughs> I like yours better. Covering fire is better than what I said. Uh, and, and she she is very strategic in the the command that she has for the squirrels. And I think it's so cool that they come in, they do you know a, a salvo, they do a volley. Um, they're so high up in the trees that it's almost impossible to see where they are. And then they scurry away and they get away. They're using yeah. you know the advantage of them being squirrels in, in the way that they fight. And, um, but again, they're not without casualties too. Like they're having spears thrown up at them. They're having to, um, you know, understand when they need to press forward and fall back. Um, and lady Amber is the one that who's throwing these commands. She's in the tree calling to them, telling them what to do, getting ready for next volley. We see that a lot more later on too, but this, this starts happening in this chapter. This is one of the reasons why I bring up that question of, do we really need you know, kind of a unifying figurehead um, in order to mount a, a strong resistance, because we see that the elements are there for a strong resistance in Mossflower. We have Bella yeah. and Brock Hall, and we have Lady Amber, and we have Skipper of Otters, who are absolutely uh, creatures of action. And we'll learn more about Formal's relationship to them as well. But it it seems clear like the pieces are here. So really, what is the what is the missing dynamic? Why is it that they can't seem to rally enough to really confront Sarmina? And I I think that's some of the question of like what is a warrior's destiny? What is a warrior's place? Yeah, I, we can definitely unpack this now if you want. Um, what do you feel like this? is a warrior's journey though like compared to how what we saw in redwall in a way yes i so symbolically there is the broken sword right um which i think kind of represents the broken spirit of moss flower like there there exists perhaps a foundation you know something that we can really build on but symbolically we're, we're not there yet we need to re hone the sword right we have to kind of unify the pieces back again um in order to strengthen resolve and i think that that is symbolically the arc of this story it's not necessarily a warrior's journey because we know that martin is already a warrior but i think it is more about how do we create effective resistance against evil you know what are the stages that are necessary in order to consolidate into a a more unified community? Hmm, Yeah. Yeah. I kind of thought about it differently um, with the broken sword. Cause I was kind of thinking of it more like an Arthurian legend, like the sword in the stone kind of a thing. Oh, absolutely. um, But I'll, I'll talk, I'll get into this a little bit further because I think that it makes more sense when we talk about, this towards chapter 20. So I'm going to keep my pin on, on Martin, the warrior. Cause I have some things to say about him, but I think we need to get a little further on. Yeah. It's surprising how kind of little he really plays into a lot of the events up until this point, you know, he's just making his escape and we do see that he's pretty canny at action. Uh, but for the most part, a lot of the action is really being taken by some of the other peripheral characters around Martin. So in chapter 11, Fortunata is woken by one of Sarmina's soldiers who gives the fox the task of bringing out the gloomer. Really, this chapter exists just to introduce us to the gloomer, who's a very interesting little uh, villain, kind of in the same way that, would you say, like, Shadow was an interesting villain? Yeah. Yeah, I read this and I was like, it's Shadow 2.0, man. Like, (laughs) we are going to have a character that is super cool that is probably going to be short-lived. I I think we should call this the Shadow Trope because I think this is going to happen a lot more in Redwall books. But the Gloomer, yeah. yeah. So you you heard it here first on Books and Badgers, the Shadow Trope. Um, (laughs) Anyways, we're not talking about hedgehogs with machine guns and um, skates. (laughs) We're talking about something else. Uh, Anyways, I I think the is it in this chapter that we actually learn what the gloomer is, or is it in the next one? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's it's this chapter. Yeah. Yeah. So the gloomer being a rabid or a rabid rat essentially sea rat basically yeah that's locked up completely feral yeah 
we also learned that there's a lake that's at the very base of Kotir, um, right? Or or yes. a pond, and that's where they're keeping the gloomer. And so the <laughs> Fortunata's men have to go down there, and they have this whole procedure of just trying to get this insane rat off his leash essentially to get him yes. up the river um and he's just like plowing through thrush and bushes to try to get to the water like he just only wants to be in water which i thought was kind of funny um but the, the, yeah this whole introduction of the gloomer felt so much more of like what shadow like like you said what shadow is he is um different from any of the red wall creatures the moss flower creatures that we know um has very distinct traits like they talk about his eyes and his like his kind of um steely glare and or, or just his, the the way that he looks is so much different yeah so very cool introduction very short chapter um the shadow trope there it is yeah yeah, I I think uh, going forward as we encounter some of these characters, definitely want to keep our eye on the shadow trope because it it is a whole thing. Uh, I love the gloomer. We could talk about the gloomer when we do our wrap up of like most yeah. memorable Berman. <laughs> yeah, um, but I that. I kind of love the the gloomer. It's just like this crazed feral sea rat who's like just really good at swimming, I guess. Were you surprised as to what the gloomer was? I know that you read this book before, you know, 20 something years ago, but were you surprised when you learned what the gloomer was? I was. Yeah. I actually thought, uh, originally I, I thought the gloomer was a fish and, uh, I was wrong. I was very, I thought the gloomer was going to be like a stingray or something. I was really surprised that it was a feral rat where I was like, (laughs) that seems really messed up. Like, I don't know if we, <laughs> you know, if this is a, a, a sentient being that you just keep locked up in a, in a bath all the time and they go so crazy or, you know, like, um, yeah, I was, I was really surprised by that. I also, yeah, we could, we could talk about the gloomer for a long time. I, I think that, um, Jake should have used a different animal for this, but I then learned why he didn't use a fish because of what happens in the next chapter. Right. Right. And speaking of the next chapter in chapter 12, the otters respond to news of the gloomer by setting loose Stormfin, a massive pike they've kept in captivity. The gloomer and Stormfin meet in a terrible aquatic battle, which ends with the gloomer's death much to Sarmina's humiliation. This this chapter, is this just not like fan service? I don't know. Like, <laughs> this is so funny that they, like, it's just Stormfin versus the Gloomer. I think st- the introduction of Stormfin is so clever and him being this massive pike. But this feels mm. like a WWE wrestling bout that's just happening. <laughs> like, it's, it, this, the whole chapter is basically just them fighting and them going yeah. at it. And we have, like, a fake victory happen where um, Stormfin looks like he's uh gravely injured by the gloomer and swims off but we realize that it's really just so that he can get the ramming speed up and he slams into gloomer (laughs) and kills him like this whole come from the top row (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah he's coming from the top row in order to uh put the kibosh on on the gloomer um i don't know what else to say about this chapter besides the fact that it was just like I don't know. Jake's is watching some Monday Night Raw or something and wanted to include this in. Yeah, man, I I love this chapter uh because it's so it's just so weird and it's so different from the pace of the rest of the book. Um, you know, I I think this book one, it's so long that you kind of have to spice it up just a little bit. So much is going on. Um right, so having yeah. a chapter that was just like you know, this is another fight, you know, pertaining to this breakout from Katir. Um, I don't know. I just, I enjoyed the heck out of it. We could probably remove this and not, not really <laughs> lose anything to the book. Yeah. Uh, but it's just so fun. Like, it's the little dash of spice that, that just adds dimension to the book for me. Now, remind me, in this chapter, it's Sarmina's men that are watching the fight happen, right? The otters aren't. Yes. 
Okay, that's right. Well, the, the, otter, the otters do witness some of it, but Sarmina doesn't know where Camp Willow is. So uh, I think the otters do have, you know, kind of a field of scouts that that watch the fight. They know the fight. Uh, but Sarmina, you know, <laughs> she's it's really her men that, that end up watching the gloomer just uh, flail around and die. Yeah, and I think we also start to get more of a glimpse glimpse at Sarmina's rage, too, because after yes. the gloomer dies, she goes in a fit. We see her have fits a lot in her room where uh, I imagine she just like if you've ever seen a cat just flip over something and just start scratching it. That's what she does. She just kind of freaks out. But she had she does this in the woods with all of her men there. Yeah. And she's super mad. She's just going crazy after the gloomer dies. Um, and I think they just up and leave, right? They, they are just like, okay, well yeah. that didn't work. And they go back to Cotier to, to try to come up with another plan. In chapter 13 at Brock hall, the quorum celebrates Gomph's escape with Martin from Cotier together. The quorum decide to hire a spy, a Robin named Chib. <laughs> Good old Chib. I um, love chip <laughs> we haven't really <laughs> got introduced to him but this initial discussion of like how do we get chip to do what we want him to do and they explain that sometimes they hire him out but he's very difficult to negotiate with and so they start preparing payment for chip which right. is a great callback to redwall because it's the candy chestnuts that <laughs> that birds love i love this little detail so much because of my um uh, my my love for King Bull Sparrow and the the Sparrow Court and just how crazy that is, but I'm a little disappointed that people forgot that birds loved candy chestnuts because it seems like in Redwall they just kind of stumble on the fact that Warbeak wants the candy chestnuts and I'm like oh I guess birds love this, but in this <laughs> scene we learn that they're very well aware of what the payment for Chib would be. <laughs> And they start like the production process for it. Um, yeah, L very cool callback. I wish it tied in a little bit better to what happens in Redwall, but it's very cool to see that Jake's is reusing this this um, um, trait, I guess, for birds that they love yeah. the, the, the chestnuts. Thanks for checking out part one of book one, Cotier for Mossflower. You can find us on Instagram and threads at Books and Badgers. That's with an N between Books and Badgers. You can also email us any questions that you may have at booksandbadgers at gmail.com. If you love our voices, particularly, particularly Trevor's voice, uh, you can hear more from him on his podcast, Slayhouse Presents. Again, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in part two.